All right. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. The message is entitled, A Call to Practical Obedience. And this is part one. We'll get part two next time. Paul told the Philippians to set their conduct worthy of the gospel, if you remember, in unity and humility for the interest of others, illustrated by the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. This was always the focus of Jesus, the interest of others. This is not what the world focuses on, but rather on self. And certainly in our nation, there was that social grace for many, many years and decades, but um, things started turning in our country when um, uh, we, we turned uh, after World War II. It started getting a little sour, and through the 60s it broke out. And by the time we got to the 70s, there was so much self-esteem that we couldn't get our eyes off ourselves rather than others. And it hasn't stopped since. Too often people are confused and conclude that working out our salvation, as we're going to see here, and God working in us both to will and to do contradicts each other or that one must be chosen over the other when in fact they are complementary truths, no contradiction. Paul has uh, revealed this already, how often the human and the divine are together. Uh, at this, in the first chapter, in verse 19, he said, uh, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Does that mean that if they didn't pray that Paul was not going to be delivered from prison? No. How is it that works at divine and the human? I don't understand it all the time, but I know they're both necessary. They're not a contradiction in themselves. In fact, Paul is calling the Philippians to practical obedience from verse 12 here all the way to verse 18. And this section fits in the larger section that we began in chapter 1, verse 27, all the way to chapter 2, verse 11 here. The specific application is after the example of Christ again as he gave it to us in 5 through 11 of this chapter. If you were with us in our study of James, uh, he reminded us of the danger of hearing, but not being doers of the word of God. Yet we can always justify in um, our disobedience, but it always is evidence of our self-deception. Whenever I'm not a doer of the word of God and I somehow rationalize it or justify it or excuse it by pointing fingers at something else, that's, that's evidence of my own self-deception. Um, the Bible is like a mirror and it tells you exactly what you look like. Uh, you ladies get in front of a mirror every morning, more than one. And... Have you ever called your mirror a liar? You never have. You, you like your mirrors. They tell you the truth. If your eyelashes crooked or something else, you fix it before you leave. And before you get out of the car, wherever you're going, you take one last look. Because you trust that mirror to tell you the truth. This is the word of God. It doesn't lie. 
So we want to look at the call to practical obedience that involves three things here in verses 12 and 13. Let me read. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. This practical obedience involves three things. First, the person born again, the first part of 12. Second, the human responsibility, the remaining part of 12. And thirdly, the divine enablement, verse 13. The call to practical obedience involves a person born again. What Paul is going to ask and declare here can never be asked or required of a non-believer, ever. The apostle is still addressing the Philippians about their Christian living example. The word therefore. Paul is continuing the larger section that began, as I said, in chapter 1, verse 27, and goes down here to verse 11. And the word therefore means so that, or inasmuch that, or so then. This word doesn't mean conclusion as we saw last time in verse 9. It's a different word. But it's a continuation connected, but not a conclusive, a conclusion of what precedes, though it's connected. He's calling the Philippians to practical obedience, again from verse 12 down to 18. The words of Paul are connected back to the very start then of verse 27 of chapter 1. We will pick up almost the same language. Now, Paul declared it was their duty to live out Christ or conduct worthy of the gospel. As we go back to verse 27 of chapter 1 to 30. The picture of their worthy conduct was whether Paul went and saw them, or whether he was absent from them. It didn't matter. The particulars of their worthy conduct, standing fast united in one spirit and one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, corporately, not being terrified by their adversaries that were being persecuted there, verse 27 and 28 of chapter 1. The privilege of their worthy conduct was to not only believe, but also to suffer for uh, his sake, his namesake, verse 29 and 30. Then in chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, Paul also exhorted them about their unity in Christ, reminding them that of their provisions by Christ in verse 1. He had given them example. He had made those provisions. In verse 2, telling them of his expected joy as they were like-minded, having the same mind of one accord and of one mind. And then in verse 3 and 4, instructing them that nothing is to be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but a humility of mind esteeming others better than oneself looking out for the interests of others. This you have to work at and deny yourself and look to Christ. It doesn't come automatically. I wish I could tell you it does. It does not. 
When I was first born again, I always thought, well, maybe, you know, you mature, you grow, and you get to a place where this kind of just starts happening automatic. I'm still waiting. Um, we live in this sinful um, nature that this body contains, but we also have a divine nature that's able to overrule it, meaning that there is a very possible accomplishment of what is required of us. In chapter 2, 5 through 8, Paul then commanded them to think like Christ towards each other after the example of serving others by his great humility of being God, but waiving his right as God, as he said in verse 5 and 6. And in 7, by the extent of his humility, divesting himself or emptying himself of his glory on a human body through the incarnation. One just like the last, like the first Adam, exactly, yet without sin. In verse 8, by the death of his humility through the incarnation, even to the point of dying on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, it was the most unjust thing that has ever happened upon this earth. He was without sin. He was absolutely innocent. Yet he became sin for us. Who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He finished up in chapter 2, 9 through 11. Revealing the outcome of that humiliation of Christ. The greatness of his exaltation. He's the God-man. Jesus Christ is the answer to Job's problem. Job says... I have no umpire, if you will, between God and I. Jesus is the answer to his problem. He is the God-man, the daysman between them, the umpire, if you will. In verse 10, the extent of his exaltation, all will bow in heaven, earth, and beneath the earth. In the height of his exaltation, all will acknowledge verbally Jesus Christ to the glory of God. There will be no exception. Right now, he gives an opportunity by choice, and we receive his goodness by grace through faith. But one day, all will bow. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Notice still in 12, the Apostle Paul then addressed the Philippians in a loving manner in view of all this that we looked at. My beloved. Paul loved the Philippians very much, as you know. The word beloved, agapitos, has the root word agape, God's divine love. Love for sinners, love for saints. God loves the sinner as much as he loves the saint. It's just that he can't bless the saint until he repents and he becomes uh, our, our sinner he can't bless them until they repent and become a saint. Just like you as a father or mother, when your child is out of whack with you for whatever reason, and you want to bless them with your love, but you can't because you have to teach them the lesson until they repent. Once they repent and it's taken care of, then you can shower them with your love. But when your son or daughter is out of kink with you, you, you don't love them any less, but you know the relationship isn't right. And to bless them when they're bad, 
is to teach them something that's not true and something that's bad for them. So the lessons from the lesser to the greater. It is one of of endearment, affection, someone highly esteemed to be worthy of love. Love is um, this is expressed to the members of the family of God because they were of the same family. They had been born again. And that's the um, interesting thing that throughout the ages, uh, the church has been made up of Jew and Gentile, one. And um, regardless of the background, regardless of the culture, regardless of the race, regardless of the economic standing, regardless of the social standing, we are one in Christ Jesus. And we don't exalt ourselves one against the other. That's what makes Christianity completely different from everything else. Now, you have to work at this against the culture who is there to divide you in every way. Now, you've got the culture that wants to corrupt you. And you've got the culture that wants to dominate your moral and ethical standard. So you have to make judgments that are biblical in spite of the culture. You have to make judgment between right and wrong, moral and immoral, ethical and unethical. But at the same time, you don't make a distinction of superiority or excellence due to race, color, greed, or anything else, economics, if they're born again. Because we're one in Christ Jesus. But even sometimes um, people that are Christians, they have this thing that uh, I know these, this group of people that they just, they're dying to have some Jewish blood in them. They're just looking for, you know, they even take their DNA and they, oh. So what is that to me? Whether you're Jewish, whether you're Gentile, you're a rotten sinner. God doesn't say, ooh, he's 5% Jew. But we get all flustered about things like this. Every church in Pasadena, I guarantee you, is looking for a multicultural congregation. They want to make sure they have certain percentages of blacks and browns and yellows and purples and greens and everything else to make sure that they are seen as open-minded, multicultural, non-judgmental, and the angels throw up. I'm just looking for the people God brings. And whatever God brings, we preach the gospel and let God set up his church. This quota thing started in the 70s with affirmative action. <laughs> certain percentage of people that get into college because they're Mexican or because they're black or this and that. And it snowballed into corruption. Now the churches are into it too. These front seats, they're not safe for white people. They're not safe for black people or Mexicans. They're safe for whoever, first come, first serve. Does it make any difference? You guys see any uh, any signs out there in the parking lot? Pastors parking? 
You get here before me, you get the parking. No big deal. It's innate in us. It corrupts us. The love of Paul for the Philippians is seen through the entire book. In Philippians 1, 23, 25, he was willing to postpone heaven for them. <laughs> Amazing. In two seventeen through 18, he cared about their concern for him, but told them his sacrifice was a loving joy for them. In 2.19, he was concerned about them. So, he was going to send Timothy to them shortly. In 3.2, he warned them about the Judaizers, evil workers. In 4.2, he confronted individuals, Yodi and Syntyche. They were at odds with each other. In 4.18 and 19, he was thankful for the financial gift and told them God would reward them richly. He loved them. Paul addressed the saints having the capacity to obey what he was about to tell them in view of their safe relationship to Jesus. Recognizing Jesus was a man like they, tempted in all points as they are, but yet without sin. So they couldn't make excuses. Recognizing Jesus humbled himself, being God, they should be humble also. Recognizing Jesus was always acting in the interest of others, so each of them. Paul is saying, in view that you have the capacity, you need to be Christ-like. That's what he's telling them. You know, when someone sees a bird... They know they are created with the capacity of flight. When someone sees a horse, they know they are created with the capacity to run and run real fast. Likewise, when you or I see a Christian, you and I know that we're created in Christ with the capacity to live out the example of Christ. There's no such thing as, you know, God didn't, he shortchanged me. I got an inferior kind of salvation. Really? Wow. The natural man is spiritually dead, as you know. He's dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. One tells us he walks according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air that now works in the children as sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2.2. 2. He conducts himself in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind as children of wrath by nature, just as others and just as you and I did before coming to Christ, Ephesians 2.3. The spiritual man is alive. Spiritually, he's been born again. He or she has repented of their sins. In Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says, But God, who was rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. But God, what a great, great two words. But God. That's how I got saved. But God. 
What a change that makes. He or she are one with Jesus now and raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2, 5 says. He or she have been now capacitated to obey Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Jesus Christ, Ephesians 2, 7. This is all that God has done for us. Paul says to the Corinthians, what do you have that you have not received? And if you have received it, why are you boasting? Hmm. The call to practical obedience involves a person born again. Not a non-believer. A person born again. Now notice, secondly, the rest of 12, the call to practical obedience involves human responsibility. The Apostle Paul declared human responsibility is to be consistent in obedience. Paul recalled their life in the past first, as you have always obeyed. The word obey, hupakul, means to hear, to give audience under someone. We get acute, the word acute from it, acute hearing, very sensitive. The tense is indicative, error is active, having taken place in the past. The word is used of children and slaves, but never of a wife. Ephesians 6, 1 and 5, for slaves and children. The one for the wife is hupa tasso, a military term to line up under for efficiency. A wife's never told to obey. She submits to her husband out of love and honor and reverence and understanding the priorities and the hierarchy that God has set up for her own protection, not to rule her. The same word is used of the winds and seas that obeyed Jesus in Matthew 8, 27. Wind be muzzled. The disciple says, truly, this is the Son of God. <laughs> Jesus recognized and acknowledged to be under the authority of the Father. Therefore, we are also under authority. If Jesus submitted himself, the head of Christ is God. The head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is the man, the chain of command, God's creative order. Authority and submission. Without these two, nothing can happen. We see in our society everything falling apart because what's going on in our nation now is anarchy. There's no more authority, no more submission. Someone has to give the orders, someone has to carry them out. Now, nobody wants to carry them out. Everybody wants to give the orders. It's called anarchy. I told you four years ago, from oligarchy, the next step is anarchy. That's exactly what we're seeing in our nation now. 
When we do not obey, we are telling Jesus we are under our own authority. When your child does not obey you, does that please you? He's saying, I'm the boss. (laughs) That's what he's saying. Notice Paul declared that obedience in the past will build a pattern for obedience for the present. Listen to his words. Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. He had confidence that their past obedience when he was present with them was genuine, not hypocritical. By the words, not in my presence only. Obedience before the presence of authority is validated as true obedience when it occurs also in the absence of that authority. That my children obeyed me when I was raising them, when I was present, pleased me. But when they obeyed my words when I wasn't present, that pleased me more. That gave me evidence that their obedience in my presence was genuine. Just as obedience in public will be validated by obedience in private. If my obedience to God is only in public and not in private, then my public is hypocrisy. Duplicity. It's invalid. It's canceled out. Notice he had confidence in the saints at Philippi that their present obedience would be just as consistent and genuine. Listen to his words. But now much more in my absence. The physical absence of Paul was not used as a carnal reason to not obey or a spirit of rebelliousness. The absence of Paul did not prompt them to contradict their conduct worthy of the gospel. In fact, Paul told Christian slaves in Ephesians 6, 6-7, Servants, Obey your masters, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. He didn't qualify only the saved masters. He said, your masters. Those believers and those non-believers. That means those that are just and those that are unjust. Wow. Notice the Apostle Paul declared human responsibility is to follow through with one's own salvation. Paul pronounced a command to the Philippians. Listen carefully. Work out your own salvation. The phrase work out means to work at, literally. The idea is bringing to completion, to carry to the goal. This is an imperative command, not a suggestion. 
and the present tense and the middle voice. The middle voice, as you know, every time it appears, it's what the believer, the individual, has to do themselves, for himself. No one else can do it. Literally, continue to work out. It was happening. He says, continue. A present active. In other words, it is not something you do from yourself, but something you do by the ability imparted to you by God, as we'll see. But you're involved. The word is used of godly repentance. Works repentance. The word works in Second Corinthians 7, 10. It's the same word. If I am really repentant with a godly sorrow, I bring to completion the evidence of that action. Did I do it of myself apart from Christ? No. But he did not force me. I obeyed and yielded and responded. You can't separate the two. The word is used of God's armor, having done all. And then it says to stand, Ephesians 6.13. Having done all, there's the word. No one can do that for me. Notice Paul is not teaching we can earn salvation. It does not mean salvation is by works, as so many people would accuse you or I of as we're teaching this. Never. Titus 3, 5 says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Looking unto Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12, 2 tells us. So it does not mean salvation by works. We are justified. We are saved solely by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Nothing else. But it also doesn't teach salvation maintained by works. Philippians 1.6, he's already told them, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He will complete it. But I'm active, ain't I? I'm not passive. I'm living differently. I'm making better choices. It's called obedience. Nothing can be added to the atoning work of Jesus for our justification and salvation. That's why Paul says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and to the Gentile. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, the just shall live by faith, quoting Habakkuk 2, 4. That proposition, that's the proposition of Romans, and he just pounds it away from every angle so that no one can come to God apart from Jesus Christ alone. Salvation is described in three ways. I have been saved, Ephesians 2.8. I am being saved, 1 Corinthians 1.18. And I shall be saved, Hebrews 9. 26, have been, are being, and shall be, a threefold process. Yet God sees it all at one time. He knows all things. 
He can see my life all at one time from my birth to a thousand years into eternity. He alone would know what a thousand years in eternity are. I wouldn't. But he can see it all at one time. We have a difficult time with that. It's like watching the rose parade. You know, the rose parade comes by here every year. And um, the rose parade probably doesn't get to this corner till probably at 45, 50 minutes, something like that, maybe an hour, something like that. But if I go up on the Goodyear blimp, I would be able to see the beginning, the middle, and the end all at one time. From the heavenly perspective, he says it all is one. No problem for God. Paul is teaching we are actively involved in our salvation. I am responsible for the growth, development, and maturity in my life as the goal of salvation. Philippians um, chapter 3 in verse 14 through 16, as you know, he speaks about pressing towards the mark, the high call of God, forgetting uh, one thing needful, forgetting those things that are behind, pressing forward to the things that are ahead. I press towards the mark, the high call of God in Christ Jesus. God will not force me against my will. God will expect me to submit my will. And God will give me sufficient time to accomplish it. When God saved me, he knew I was going to be married. He knew the number of children I was going to have. He knew how busy I was going to be. And he knew that if I seek him, I'll be able to accomplish all that he has for my life if I live my life by priorities and I'm developing, maturing in Christ Jesus. Because I will eliminate things living by priority that I have no business doing. In the world, I did what I wanted. Now I do what Christ wants. Now, whether I will accomplish everything or not, I'll find out when I get there. I doubt if I'll be able to accomplish everything. I'm, I'm a sinner like you. I'm sure I'm going to miss some things. But the more I grow, the more I develop, the closer I stick to God, the more I'm going to probably hit the mark. He's going to direct and guide me. I'm going to be doing what he wants. I know what God wants of my life. To be responsible regarding my salvation by the study of the word. By the conviction of the Holy Spirit. By the example of others. Paul, notice, gives the manner we are to be involved in our salvation with fear and trembling. The phrase with fear, phobos, it means that which is caused by being scared. And then as a result, often it causes people to run or flight because you're afraid. Now some people say, well, it means reverence. No, it doesn't. It means fear. <laughs> and the second word is going to confirm that, okay? It means you're scared. How often does God say, stop being afraid in the Old Testament and in the New Testament? He's not telling them to be uh, reverent. <laughs> they were afraid. Fear is a very common thing. I was just reading the Psalms. I'm going through the Psalms right now, and I'm just, it hit me so um, evident this time how often David was fearful. 
Mark every time David speaks. He's, he's, he's so afraid all the time. There's people that are talking about him. They're plotting against him. They're chasing him. They're trying to trap him. They're, they're, they're praying that, 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 that somebody kill him. Uh, he's just, he, he's afraid. And God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. Fear is there and it wants to grip us, but it cripples us. So we constantly have to seek out the Lord. Lord, help me in my fear. Lord, give me your joy. Give me your strength. Give me your confidence. We get our word phobia from it. Recognizing God sees how diligent I am to carry out the goal of my salvation. I fear God. This is what's lost in the church today is people have lost the fear of God. And I think the greatest culprits are pastors. They've lost the fear of God. How do I know? By what they teach. By what they're buying as doctrine. It's insane. People only see my actions. God sees my motives, my thoughts, and my intents. Psalm 139 says that he knows my thoughts from afar off, meaning from their origin. I don't know till I get them in my brain. Then you have the accompanying word trembling. Complementary word. Tromos means quaking. You realize that the, that's where the Quakers got their name, right? Today, they're modern day Friends Church. They used to sit around and wait on the Holy Spirit and they would end up quaking. That's where they got their name. This is the word quaking. Thayer says, it is used to describe the anxiety of one who distrusts his ability completely to meet all the requirements, but religiously does his utmost to fulfill his duty. That is good. I do not trust my own ability to do what God calls me to do. But realizing that I'm not sufficient for that... I do all that I can to entrust myself to yield to God in obedience, knowing that he will be faithful. So I'm working out my own salvation in fear of God, which prompts me to act, doing all while distrusting my own abilities. Do not be deceived. God does not mock whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. You sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. You sow to the spirit, you reap everlasting life. Galatians 6, 7 through 8. I've thought often about my own position as pastor. And who in the world would be brash enough to choose a profession, if you will, call it a profession, that you would have to um, deliver three to four sermons different every week for the rest of your life. 
Who would be so brash to say, I'll take that job. I can do it. I remember taking speech class the first time. I freaked out. Three minutes? But when God calls you, enables you, and he imparts those things, and you depend upon him, you are the first to know that it's God every time. And when you don't yield to God, you're the first to know that it was all you tonight. There is no secrets. <laughs> Listen to Samuel, first Samuel fifteen, twenty two and twenty three. Samuel said to Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? As in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and the heat and the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. As you know, Saul disobeyed God and tried to make a sacrifice. Well, the people, you know, they wanted to and I just thought it would be good sacrifice. And Samuel says, be quiet. Disobedience is the pattern of Satan who rebelled against the will of God, wanting to be God, obeying a different power, spirit, and will. When I don't obey the Lord, that's what I'm doing. Human responsibility is to abide in Christ in salvation. It makes us accountable to God, but it is not working for salvation. Calvinists would say that we're teaching, working for salvation. No, we're not. I don't want to get sidetracked with Calvinism. We've covered that. Pick up the series. (laughs) Um, Listen to the words of Jesus in John 15, 5 through 6. Listen carefully. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, underline that, he who abides in me. Who's he talking to? Who's the audience? His disciples. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, not any branch, if any one person, talking to his apostles, does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they burn. You need any explanation on that? Self-explanatory, right? A vine branch, if it's cut off, It withers and dies. It's only good for burning, right? He's talking the parallel between those who follow him and depart from him. They don't continue. Now, if there was no possibility of not continuing and walk or or not walking away from Jesus, why would he bring it up? Why would he suggest it? When you tell your child when they're four or five years old in the front yard, don't go outside the gate. There's a lot of cars out here. Is it a hypothetical situation? There's no real danger? Of course there is. If you being evil, give that kind of warning to your child, and it's valid, how much more God? Access of Paul, listen carefully, Acts eleven twenty three. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that 
with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. In Acts 13.43, Acts again says, Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Romans 11.22, Paul speaking to the Gentiles, says, Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, meaning the Jew. Severity, but towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Is he exaggerating? Is he lying? Hmm. Colossians 1, 21 through 23. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled to his body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away. He says, indeed, continue. And he says it from the other end and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to you, uh, to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. What do people do with those scriptures? You know what they do? They ignore them. Or they spin them. (laughs) Like the newscasters today, they spin everything. They don't deal with truth. Human responsibility will affect my development and salvation and affect the lives of others, for we are interrelated. We um, affect one another. And we are interdependent. We need one another. Once again, Acts 14.22 says, Strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and say we must through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. By the way, this is the new church that Paul planted, and he tells them, uh, how, how many converts do you think you have with people preach like this? <laughs> wow. Continue. There's a word again. Ephesians 4.16, Paul says, From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working of which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edification of itself in love. Paul told Timothy, take heed to yourselves and to the doctrine. Listen, continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. 1 Timothy 4.16. There are many, many others. We are not teaching works for salvation. But we definitely are talking about you must abide in Christ Jesus. The words of Jesus. Let's use his words so we're not misunderstood. And let's not spin them. Let's take them for what they say. Human responsibility never affects or alters the purposes of God. God declares, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what it pleases, and it shall prosper in the things which I have sent it. Isaiah fifty-five eleven. Paul confirms this in Romans eleven thirty-six. For in him and through him... And to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. How can he do all this? I don't know, but I'm sure glad he can. (laughs) If I, as your pastor, did not do my part by human responsibility and obeying God, how would that affect the church at Pasadena? If I had not yielded my human responsibility 
What would be the condition spiritually of feeding you, praying for you, overseeing the body, discipling people? What kind of condition would be in? Hebrews 13, 7 says, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, those whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. So we are to look at men, mark men's lives, and follow those who are following Christ. We don't follow men, we follow men who are following Christ, therefore we're following Christ. Okay? That's what he's saying. Obey those who rule over you, and, sub- and be submissive, for they which uh, they watch out for your souls, as those who must give an account, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you, Hebrews thirteen, seventeen. Peter, um, remember Jesus spoke to him, but do you love me more than these? And Peter in his epistle, first Peter five, one through four says, The elders which are among you, I exhort, I who am also a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory which will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willfully or willingly, not for dishonest gain, money, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when Christ, uh, the chief shepherd, appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. A call to practical obedience involves Human responsibility. Third and last, look at 13. The call to practical obedience involves divine enablement. This is the flip side. The Apostle Paul declared the person acting on our behalf is God. For it is God. God is always the initiator. This is the flip side, as I said. Demands responsibility as a human, the responder. God spoke everything into existence. God sustains everything that exists. God will destroy everything one day. Now, is there anything in your life that would require more power to fix or transform than the three things I have just mentioned? (laughs) and yet the problem with us is always we're measuring the potential of God by the difficulty of our problem and so we limit God as the psalmist says you see if you have a cold and you ask me to pray for you I just take out my little bottle of oil no problem dab you lay hands and pray but you tell me you have cancer I go oh lord And so the situation and the difficulty at times is there to not trust God or to not come boldly before the throne of grace when he wants to do so much more. God told Abraham that Sarah was going to conceive. He parted the Red Sea. He gave the kingdom to David. He entrusted the gospel to 11 men that were going to desert him. God is different than us, isn't he? Jesus speaking 
on the difficulty of a rich man entering the kingdom of God says, with men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Matthew 19, 26. Salvation is not impossible for God, but only for man. The amount of sin or kind of sin is no problem for God. God does, um, does not save only those who have committed certain minor sins, but saves a person from all their sins. God does not save us because we are good or our good works, but because we are bad and good for nothing. And we agree with him. In fact, God draws a person to salvation by the preaching of the gospel, illuminates the lost condition, brings conviction to that person, and they respond in faith, and they're saved by grace through faith, that not of themselves is a gift of God. John 6, 44, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. God does all this. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. And he allows me to see, get conviction, and then he says, okay, you want to be saved. He doesn't force me. He doesn't make the decision for me. Do you not know that unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, and such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Incredible, incredible grace. The Apostle Paul declared the power that is carrying out the goal of our salvation, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, the second person of the Trinity. Listen to his words. Who works in you. The word works means to be operative, to display one's activities. The word is used of God's actions and effectiveness and human responsibility, merging together. Both go together. They complement. Listen to uh, Romans fifteen sixteen, That I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, um, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. You see, the Holy Spirit is a comforter who bursts the church in the day of Pentecost. As you know, the Holy Spirit as, um, is with us as believers he dwells with us and he is in us, John fourteen seventeen tells us. Jesus said it was necessary that he go away. If he didn't go away, the Holy Spirit would not come in John sixteen seven. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, John sixteen eight tells us. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth that guides us into all truth. He does not speak of his own authority, only what he hears and he tells us of things to come. And he only glorifies Jesus, not himself. John sixteen thirteen through 14 tells us. The Holy Spirit is carrying out the work of salvation in and through the believer. 
First Peter 1 Peter 1.2 says, Elect according to foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. His power to accomplish salvation is unlimited. Ephesians 3.20-21 it says, Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church of Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Wow. Notice Paul the Apostle declared the process of salvation is not only initiated by him, but performed by God. Both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Paul pointed out the will of God as paramount in the process of life of the believer. Once again, notice, God initiates to will. It means to have in mind or purpose certain things in the life of the believer. Once again, God enables to do. The same Greek word as the word works in the same verse. To be operative, display one's activities. God living through you, living through me, through that obedience. Yet man still has and maintains a free will to obey and yield or to disobey and not yield. Notice Paul pointed out that the process equals the product in salvation. See, we love the product, we just don't like the process. We want the product without the process. You can't have it. You want a cake? You've got to get the right ingredients. You've got to let it sit in that oven for the right time. God initiates the call of Paul and Barnabas. Remember in Acts 13, 2. Separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work of the ministry which I have called them. He initiated. They responded. God initiated the guidance of the direction of Paul and Silas to Philippi through the vision of the man of Macedonia in Acts 16, 9. Come over and help us. They obeyed. We're God's hand that we're created in Christ Jesus unto good works, that we might walk in them. Not that we will walk in them, that we might walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. Notice Paul pointed out the purposes of God are always for our best interest. The product. For his good pleasure. The phrase good pleasure is one word in the Greek, the ideas of the will or choice with goodwill and kindly intent for another. It appears only one other time in this letter. Chapter 1, verse 15, listen. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife. Here it is. And some also from goodwill. Goodwill for the person who's lost. So the context tell you what this goodwill is. The good pleasure of God is always his perfect will and for our best interests. The word is used of the announcement of the angels' goodwill towards men in Luke 2.14. The word is used of God who does all according to the good pleasure of his will in Ephesians 1.5. The will of God has in mind our eternal Benefit. You guys remember Gideon? Divinely enabled in Judges chapter 6. And God says, go 
in the power of your own might. And then it says the Spirit of God came upon Gideon, literally clothed himself with Gideon. The human obedience and the divine enablement all at one. Divine enablement is my only hope for obedience. Apart from me, you can do nothing, John fifteen five. Divine enablement never violates man's will. It's free. Abraham went into Hagar in disobedience instead of waiting on God in Genesis 16. He ended up with an Ishmaelite. It's still problems today. You don't want an Ishmael in your life. Trust me. Divine enablement keeps me aware of my weaknesses, temptations, failures. Keeps me humble. Paul says, but we have this treasure in the certain vessel that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of ourselves. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of our Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Second Corinthians 4, 7 through 11. Wow. A call to practical obedience involves divine enablement. He puts it together. Practical obedience involves the person born again, human responsibility, and the divine enablement. You can't separate them. God's grace over our lives, ladies and gentlemen, He is more than able if we are willing. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, impotent. To do what only God can do through his spirit. Father, thank you for your grace and your love and your goodness. We love you. We thank you. We pray you deal with our hearts and allow us, Lord, to just um, agree with you and to trust you and depend upon you, Lord, that you may be glorified. Lord, as we pray now, Lord, we pray for those who are here that you would just deal with their hearts. Lord, those who are over the internet, Father, you would just... Father, allow them to see their need of you if they don't know you. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you see yourself as a sinner in need of Christ, then that's the work of the Holy Spirit. But now the ball's in your court. He will not force you to be saved. He will not make that decision for you. You have to make a decision whether you're for Christ or against him. No decision is a decision in itself to reject Jesus Christ. And so if you want to be born again, this is your prayer right where you sit. And he's going to forgive you and give to you eternal life right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. 
I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.